sermon series called Dear Church. And the idea behind this sermon series is we, we are looking at the letters written to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. Now, the book of Revelation was written by the Apostle John, and he wrote this letters to these seven specific churches out of a command that where Jesus appeared to him, and, and it's not just Jesus, it is a a glorified Christ. It's a revelation of Jesus. And out of that revelation, out of that vision, uh, Jesus commands him to write what he sees and what he hears to these seven churches. And the whole book of Revelations is addressed to this church, but in Revelations 2 and 3, we read specific letters towards these seven churches. And as we study these letters, we want to not just look at what Jesus said to these seven churches. We want to do it in such a way and allowing the Word of God to speak to us to say, God, what do you want to say to us as a church today? And that's the heart and the idea behind this sermon series. Dear church, Jesus, as you spoke to these churches, what are you saying to us today? Now, four weeks ago, we started with the first letter. The letter was to the church in, in Ephesus. And then it went on to the church in Smyrna, and then Pergamon, and then Thyatira. And then today, we're going to look at the church in Sardis. Now, if you're joining us for the first time, um, I trust that still, even though you've missed the first four letters, that today's message will still speak to your heart. And ultimately, like Marach Ruan already mentioned, that you will have an encounter with God. Now, before I start, this is a church in Sardis, and we might refer to them as the Sardians, not the Sardines, okay? So when I say Sardians, don't think of fish, okay? It's a church in Sardis, Sardis. If you're like Afrikaans, you can say it nice, Sardis. (laughs) So before we read together, it's in Revelation 3, you can, if you have your Bible with you, you can turn to Revelation 3, it's the last book in the Bible, it's the third chapter of this book, and, and before we study this specific letter to the church in Sardis, there's a couple of things that I want to share with you that's really important about the context of this city that will help us better understand the message that Jesus shares to this church. The first thing that we need to know about Sardis, it used to be a very prominent city. It used to be a great city. At one stage, this was one of the largest cities and most influential and most powerful cities in the ancient world. At one stage, it was the capital of the Lydian um, kingdom. It was powerful, it was influential, and it was a great city. But as the centuries passed, it started to decay. And by the Roman Empire era, when this letter was written... The city has lost its splendor. It's lost its significance and its power and its influence. And this is a city that once was great, but isn't great anymore. This city's greatness lies in its history. This is a city that has a past reputation that exceeds current reality. 
It's a city that used to be great. Second thing that we need to know about Sardis, Sardis was known for its pagan worship, meaning they entertained and hosted many pagan cults in the city, mainly Greek deities. So the worship of Greek deities like Artemis or Demeter or um, Sybil were frequent in this city. In fact, it was something that was celebrated. If you know a little bit about Greek mythology and, and these pagan worship, you would know that in the church of Ephesus, there was a massive temple erected for, for either Artemis or the, uh, the goddess Diana, depending on what your view was of this goddess. It was the largest temple, and in Sardis, they attempted to replicate this temple. That's how committed they was to the worship of these pagan gods. But what's even more significant and interesting is that in this pagan city, there was quite a big or quite a large Jewish community. There was quite a large group of Jews that gathered and lived in the city. And they were able to acquire some of the most valued property in the city. The, um, the best of the best property. And on this property, they built a massive synagogue. Prime spot, prime property. They built in the Mecca of this pagan worship a, a synagogue that was so big, it was roughly the size of a soccer or a rugby field, to give you an indication. So you have this pagan worshiping city together with a strong, large Jewish committee, uh, community, all living together in this city. And then last thing that we need to know about Sardis. Sardis was considered to be a fortress. It was uniquely situated. It was on top of a hill, and on this hill, on three of the four sides, it was surrounded by steep cliffs, which made it so difficult to attack Sardis. There was only one narrow passageway to the city of Sardis, so the Sardis was known as a military fortress. It was a safe place, a safe a place that was easy to be, uh, to be guarded. And it was really difficult to attack the city. It was known as a fortress, a safe city, easy to defend because of where it was situated. Now with that in mind, let's pray together. And then we're going to read what Jesus says to this church. So, Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are alive, that you are the risen king, and that you choose to be in relationship with each one of us, Lord, that you choose to speak to your church, not just in the days of this church in Sardis, but also to us tonight. And Lord, we humbly submit ourselves unto your word, and we acknowledge your word as the ultimate authority in our lives, Lord. And we pray now that by your spirit, you would come and make your word alive and active, that you would speak to our hearts, address our thoughts and our minds, but Lord, also make us aware of your presence. I pray that you would align my words with the truth that you want to convey to us as a church this evening. And by the authority that we have in your name, Lord Jesus Christ, I just pray now protecting a protection over us as a church. And I stand against any plans and any strategies of the enemy that wants to come and steal and take away from what you want to do in this moment. 
And Lord, I pray for your peace and your presence. Lord, as we study your word, may you speak to us now. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for this privilege. Amen. Amen. So if you were here the first week, you would remember that this is Jesus speaking to the church. It's not an apostle John that is interpreting. Jesus spoke and John wrote down what he heard Jesus speak to this church. So this is a letter from Jesus to the church in Sardis. Let's read together. Revelation 3 verse 1. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. What an intro to this letter. Now remember, as this church has received this letters, they didn't receive a specific letter for Sardis. They received the letter for all seven churches. And they would gather in a moment like this, and someone like myself would read the first letter. So the church of Sardis would sit there, and they would listen to what Jesus said to Ephesus. And then they would listen to what Jesus said to Smyrna, and then to Pergamon, and then to Thyatira. And now it's their turn. And I'm wondering, what are they expecting Jesus to say? And this is what Jesus says. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Imagine hearing these words. You have a reputation of being alive, but I know you, and you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will, know, you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge the name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Tough read. Now, most of, us, most of us know or has at least been taught how to give positive criticism. You might have heard of the, the sandwich technique. Have you heard it before? Okay. So the, way, the good way of giving positive criticism, upbuilding um, criticism. You would start with the sandwich. Okay. The outside, you would say something positive. Listen, I really liked what you did there. That was, it was great. It inspired me. Or I really appreciate you as a friend, and um, you're such a good person. And then, you, then you, you put down the truth. Then you put that moment of confrontation, the criticism, the, the this is what I've got against you. This is what I want to speak into. Uh, but when you did that, you, you, 
You do that, and then you end off again with the sandwich. That's a sandwich technique by saying something positive. But really, I have such a deep appreciation of what you're doing in my life, and I, and I hope you hear my heart behind this, and, and ultimately, I'm just thankful that we can have an open conversation like this. Have you ever, uh, one, experienced somebody share this sandwich technique with you? We're good in church at doing that. We don't want to hurt people. If you've never heard about the sandwich technique, you're welcome. Okay, you can use it. Okay, just try it out. If you're going back to a dormitory or somewhere where you have to stay with a roommate that's really difficult to, uh, and you're struggling, use the sandwich technique. Listen, you're great. You're such a great person. And I'm um, so thankful I can share this room with you. But, um, you know, it's really difficult to walk around your clothes. And I would really appreciate it if you can pick it up. Um, if you're newly married, this might be a conversation that you have to have. Okay. <laughs> Um, but just, again, I'm just so thankful, and hopefully you have my heart behind this. So that's, that's, that would be a normal way of presenting the sandwich technique, speaking truth in love. And if, if you look at the letters to these seven churches, Jesus follows a, a, a similar pattern. Jesus usually starts off by commending the church for something that they're doing right, something that they're doing good. Jesus would thank them, or saying, I see this, you're, you're doing this well. And then Jesus would rebuke them, or correct them, and then again end off with a promise. But if you do this, this would be what you experience. Throughout these seven letters, you see a similar pattern, but not with the church in Sardis. Of all seven churches, the church in Sardis faced the harshest correction from Jesus. This was Jesus' harshest letter to the church. See, with all the other churches, Jesus commends churches what they're doing well. But with Sardis, Jesus doesn't commend anything. There's nothing good that Jesus is saying to this church. There's nothing that Jesus can commend them for. Instead, Jesus starts off and he says, I know you. I know you. It's almost like it's cut to the chase, Sardis. I know you. And I know your deeds. And it is dead. There's no hiding from this reality. The author and creator of life goes, Ruan, I know you. I created you. I see your deeds. See, that what is invisible to people it's perfectly clear to God. What a confronting moment when Jesus says, I know you. It's not just I know your name, I know where you're from. I know the deepest part of your soul. I know you. And this is what he says to them. I know you. You are active, and you are busy, 
and you're doing a lot of things. And listen, you look good from the outside. You have a good name and a good reputation with people and people like you. You think you are doing great and that you are alive, but you are dead. I don't know about you, but when I first read these words, I literally sat up straight. And there was a fear in me, and I, and I prayed, and I said, Jesus, may I not miss what you want to do in my life. May I not be deceived. Because Jesus is calling out the hypocrisy of this church. You have a good reputation among men, but inside you're dead. I know you. You're doing a lot of stuff, but you're dead. think you're alive, but in my eyes, you're dead. Notice Jesus is not saying you're ill, you're struggling, you're suffering, there's something wrong. Jesus says you're dead. And this dead is not lightly used like how we would use it. If you went to the gym for the first time in six months and you're just there, you pick up some weights. You go back home, you're like, I'm dead. That's not what Jesus is saying to this church. It's not saying, hey, you went through a season and you're tired and you're struggling. Or listen, you studied through the night and you're, I'm dead tired. That's not what Jesus is saying to this church. Jesus is saying, you're dead. Not ill, not injured, not suffering. Dead. And think of the significance of this moment. Jesus is not speaking to unbelievers. He's not saying you're spiritually dead. You've not been awakened yet to new life. He's speaking to a church. People that have experienced new life in Jesus. People that have experienced something about His love and grace. People that have responded to Him. But something changed. Something made them move from this being alive in Christ to being spiritually dead. I know you. And this brings us to the big question. Why was this church dead? Why did Jesus have to rebuke them so harshly? Why did he have to give such a strong message to awaken this church? What caused this spiritual death? Tonight from this text, I want to suggest four things that happened in this church that caused their death. Four things, not just to study this church, but to check, are these things present in my life? For if they are, I might suffer the same consequences than the church in Sardis. The first thing I want to suggest, the church in Sardis did that made them die they moved away from the gospel. I find it so interesting that even though this church was situated in a city known for its pagan worship, in a city with a strong Jewish community, uh, community this church faced no persecution or oppression. It faced no opposition. 
We don't read it. We don't see it. We don't see that this church were facing any opposition whatsoever. Now, throughout the New Testament and early church history, we see that the church was constantly um, facing persecution because of the message of the church, because of what the church was doing, what the church was saying in those communities. The, the church faced opposition because of the gospel of the, the message of the gospel. And this persecution usually in church history took place via pagan communities or pagan authorities. It was usually pagan worshipping authorities or communities that persecuted the church. And if it weren't them, it was usually the unbelieving Jews. If you read through the book of Acts, you would see how many times Paul and the other apostles were persecuted or at least the riots started because of the unbelieving Jews that did not like the message of Jesus, the message of the gospel. And here's this church in the middle of a city that is known for pagan worship, that's got this massive Jewish committee, and they're facing no opposition, which tells me they moved away from the message of the gospel. In fact, it looks as if this pagan worshiping community and the unbelieving Jews embraced this church. They welcomed them. And this could only have been possible if the church moved away from the message of the gospel because the gospel is divisive. Might not be a nice thing to hear for us, but the message of the gospel is divisive. In 1 Peter 2, the apostle Peter explains how the gospel has become a stumbling block for some people. It says, um, See, I lay a stone in Zion. This is a prophetic declaration. I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. This is Jesus. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now, to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fail. The message of the gospel is a stumbling block for some. It is divisive. It brings division because the gospel says there's something inside of you that's wrong. The gospel says you're not okay. The gospel says you are a sinner in need of a savior. And the gospel says there's nothing that you can do that can save you. You need a savior. The gospel says there's only one God. And there's only one way to this God. And this way is the Lord Jesus Christ who was the son of God, who became man, who lived a sinless life, a life that we could never live, and eventually who took the penalty of sin upon himself when he died on the cross in our place. That's the gospel. And there's only one way to this God, and that is because this Jesus was raised from the dead, and now he offers up new life for everyone who choose to trust and follow him as their Lord and Savior. There is no other way. There isn't many ways to God. 
There isn't different gods, and we choose whatever one we're comfortable for. The gospel says there's one God, one way, and you're a sinner, and you need a Savior. It's a difficult message. For some of us tonight sitting here, just hearing those words, is something that rises up in our hearts. It feels offensive. Jesus says this one truth, and you're saved in one way. If this was the message of the church in Sardis, if they were actively proclaiming this gospel in the city, if they were actively reaching out to those people who did not know Jesus in order to see them saved and encounter Jesus, they would have faced opposition. Because this message by implication says, the gods that you are worshiping is not gods. There is but one God and one way to this God. They would have faced opposition. Instead, it looks as, as if this church moved away from a message of the gospel and embraced a love wins theology where everyone is embraced and accepted as they are. A love wins theology. Let's just love each other. Let's accommodate each other. Let's accept each other. You have your truth and I have my truth. And let's respect that. A love wins theology sounds great, but it's unbiblical. It's not something that Jesus said. Jesus didn't die so that we can stay the same. Choose our own truth. A love wins theology ultimately is very unloving. Because the gospel says there's one eternal destiny for those who love and follow and trust Jesus. And one eternal destiny for those who don't. saying you have your truth and I have my truth and let's respect it. It's just a different way of saying I don't care anything about your eternal future. So let's not offend people in this life. Let's just accept each other. Let's fight for peace. Because we're not concerned about eternity. And I know some people will be offended with what I share in terms of a love wins gospel. But if you want to know a love wins gospel, it cost God everything to love you. And he was willing to give everything to create one way to experience him. God wasn't willing to give his son so that we can choose whichever way suits us best to experience Him. The most loving thing we can do as a church is to hold fast to the one message of the gospel. All of us are in need of a Savior. And there's one way to God.
But it seems as if this church exchanged the message of the gospel to a love wins theology. They just accepted the community and the community accepted them. Second reason why I believe this church died. They lived nominal lives. Jesus speaks about a few who have stayed faithful, and then he says the following words, they have not soiled their clothes, they will walk with me dressed in white. Now, as I already mentioned, um, Sardis was known for its pagan worship. What I didn't mention is part of this worship of these pagan gods was a certain ritual that if you were to worship in these pagan gods' temples, you couldn't just enter in any clothing. You had to wear clean white linen to enter the temple of these gods to worship them. This was a requirement for the worship of these pagan deities. So Jesus' reference to the soiled garments of the church, he said, you've made your garments of worship dirty, is reference to you've contaminated your worship. You've mixed your worship, my worship, with the worship of pagan gods, and you've nullified your worship. You've stained your worship. To explain this better, this church became so immersed in the pagan culture that they started to do and act according to the standards of the community. They started to do and act the things that the pagan church was doing started to live in a way that the pagans were doing. They contaminated their worship, and they lived impure lives that didn't honor God. Their lifestyles wasn't any different than anyone else's lifestyle. Nothing made this church stand out. They looked exactly the same than all the other pagan worshiping people. Their lifestyles ceased to be a witness to God. They didn't look and act differently to the world. Jesus didn't come to this earth. He didn't give his life so that our lives don't change. Or that our lives looks slightly different than the standard of this world. When Jesus came and became man and he lived in this world, he brought the kingdom of God to this world. And whoever follows Jesus now lives in the kingdom of God that's got a radical different culture than the culture of this world. The kingdom of God is counterculture. The church and its lifestyle should look radically different to the world's culture. See, the world says, uh, uh, kingdom Kingdom culture is counterculture. The world says, it's all about you. The kingdom of God says, it's not about you at all. It's about someone greater than you. This life is not about you. Your life is a gift from God, and the best thing that you can do is honor Him in this life because He is worthy. The culture of this world says, just be you, just do you. The culture of the kingdom of God says, don't be you. 
There's something inside of you that's not honoring God. There's sin inside of you, and that's not God's heart and desire for you. God wants to change something in you. He wants to give you new life. He wants to transform you to be the man and woman that He created you to be. Don't do you, but be transformed into the image of Christ. The culture of this world says, make a name for yourself. The kingdom of God says, you are not defined by what you do, but who says who you are. You are defined by the highest authority and the name that he speaks over your life. That's what gives you significance, not what you do. The culture of this world says everything is permissible. The kingdom of God says there's certain things in this world that you need to flee from. Rid yourself from these things. Everything is not permissible. Everything is not healthy. Flee from sin. The world says you live only once. The kingdom of God says there's eternity that waits. The culture of this world says an eye for an eye. The kingdom of God says turn the other cheek and choose to forgive. Trust God for justice, not the justice of man. This world, the culture of this world says you are entitled to certain things where the kingdom of God says lay down all your rights like Jesus did and choose to serve. See, the kingdom of God says if you want to become great, you have to become the least. You have to humble yourself. The kingdom of God says it's better to give than to receive. The kingdom of God is counterculture. And the church in Sardis lost it. They lost their witness. They became a nominal church whose lifestyle didn't testify that there's a God that deserves so much more. Their worship became irrelevant. They were hypocrites, singing songs on Sundays and living life according to their own worlds and standards during the week. See, this church were more concerned with their outward appearance and acceptance in a pagan society than with the condition of their souls and the inward purity of their devotion towards God. They were more concerned about how they looked and if this community accepted them than their pure devotion, their holiness towards God, their worship. Third thing that this church did, they neglected their personal devotion to Jesus. Jesus says to this church, you are doing a lot of things, but you are dead and it is dead works. They have been cut off from the source of their spiritual life. And reading these words, I'm reminded of Jesus' teaching towards his disciples found in, in John 15. John 15, you can read with me. Jesus teaches his disciples and he says, Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. 
If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. They are dead. See, from the evidence of this text, I think it's fair to conclude that they neglected their personal devotion towards Jesus. Friends, it's great gathering as a church. I think it's vital for every Christian to commit to a spiritual family that regularly comes together. There's something about experiencing God in the collective that we'll never find on our own, but we can never neglect our personal devotion to God. If you stop spending time with Jesus, if you stop remaining in Him, slowly something inside of you dies. He is the vine. We are the branches. He's the source of spiritual life. And this church ceased, they failed or stopped to remain in Him. They became self-reliant, living from their own strength, seeking their own will, trusting their own wisdom and their own understanding. They stopped seeking Jesus first. They just lived life, and somewhere along the line, they hoped Jesus joined in on what they were doing. They failed to remain in Him. They neglected their personal devotion. The last reason why I believe this church died, their pride and their self-righteousness blinded them to their own spiritual need. See, Jesus warns this church. He says if they don't turn, if they don't change their ways, he says the following words, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what time I will come to you. Now, this was more than just a warning. When, when these words were read, it struck a nerve because the Sardians knew something about their own personal history that Jesus also knew. Jesus was referring to something more than just be careful. See, this fortress city, this city that was this impenetrable, uh, safe place, has survived battle on battle on battle. They've never been conquered except for two occasions. Two occasions throughout the history, they were conquered in battle. One in the 4th, and then two year, 200 years later in the 6th century before Christ. And both occasions happened in a similar fashion. Both occasions was because of their arrogance and lack of watchfulness. So when Jesus says, I'll come like a thief in the night, they knew exactly what Jesus was saying to them. On both these occasions, they were attacked by an army, and they were arrogant, and they thought they would never be conquered, and they stopped being watchful. And what happened, a soldier single soldier saw that there was a way up these cliffs that they kept unguarded. And a soldier with a group of soldiers one evening, like a thief in the night, secretly climbed up these cliffs, conquered, climbed into the city, and invaded the city from the inside. And Sardis was conquered because they stopped watching. They were arrogant, and they thought it would never happen. What's worse, 200 years later, 
it happened again. Another army, again neglecting, again being arrogant. Again, they climbed up from the cliffside. Again, they entered the city and conquered the city. See, Jesus is saying to this church, I warn you. Don't let your arrogance miss out on my grace. Don't let your pride and your self-righteousness miss what I want to do in your life. See, our own pride and arrogance can keep us from experiencing Jesus. We tell ourselves, I don't need this. I'm good. I don't need to respond. Jesus understands. See, this church's pride and self-righteousness blinded them to their own sin. It deceived them in thinking they were okay, and it made them complacent in their walk with God. This church was an example of what the Apostle, Apostle Paul described in Second Timothy, saying they had a form of godliness, but denying its power. Sardis was the dead church walking. And as the city, the church in Sardis held on to past experience, past encounters with Jesus. Their greatness as a church lied in their past, in their history. Currently they are dead. But even in this dire situation, there's still grace. And Jesus writes to them not to rebuke them, but to say to them, wake up. I know you, I know your deeds, and you think you're okay, but you're dead. And Jesus says to this church, wake up. I don't want to lose you. I don't want you to die. I don't want you to see you lost for the kingdom. Wake up. This is not Jesus' rebuke of how bad you are as a church. Jesus, this is Jesus' appeal. Wake up. I love you. I don't want to lose you. I don't know if you've ever seen a movie where someone dies. And somebody who really loves them is just lying there next to this corpse. And what do they do? They don't. Oh, wake up. Wake up. I'm so sad. Wake up. What do you see in those moments? Grab the person next to you and go, wake up! If we were to use the image that we usually see in movies, you would see someone sobbing and crying next to that body, pounding on their chest, pounding on their hearts. Wake up! Wake up, wake up. And that's Jesus pounding on the church in Sardis and says, I don't want to lose you. Wake up. I love you. I gave my life for you. Throw it away. Wake up. Hold fast to the things that's about to die in your life. Hold fast to the little truth and little faith that is left. And hold fast to it and obey it and repent and turn back and remember the message that saved you in the first place. Remember me 
remember the gospel. Repent and turn back. I love you. Wake up. So how do you respond to this? Jesus says to this church, if you, if you would hear my words and you would overcome, there's a promise. And Jesus says to the one who's victorious, they will be dressed in white. I will never blot out your name of that person from the book of life. But I will acknowledge the name before my father and his angels. What Jesus is saying to this church, forget about your reputation with people. But if you repent and all past and return to me, I will make you righteous. I will dress you in white linen. I will restore you. And you will have a good reputation with God. That's what Jesus is saying. Forget about what people are saying about you. You will have a good reputation with me. And I will acknowledge you in front of the Father. Amen.